1970s, comedian George Carlin had a routine titled Seven Words You Can Never Say on Television. It was funny and true. Maybe it was funny because it was true. That was 1972, and here we are 50 years later, and I think every dirty word that was forbidden then was likely said in the season finale of Yellowstone that just aired on the Paramount Channel. Is that progress? We can now use dirty words with impunity on TV. On the other hand, in 1972, it was common practice to question whether or not the government was telling you the truth about the war or medicine or to challenge President Nixon's competency. Dissent was fashionable. Now, 50 years later, you don't dare say anything unapproved by the government. Dissent is forbidden. And there is a ruling elite ready to punish anyone who thinks the wrong thoughts or says the wrong thing. Is that progress? Cuss all you want, as long as you never question the government. Let me read a passage from a recent article in Newsweek. The year 2021 closes as the year of the crackdown, when the ruling class weaponized its powers to crush dissenters from its wokest scientist orthodoxy in arguably the most far-reaching, brazen, and lawless attack on Americans by the state and its private sector adjuncts in our nation's history. That was the year that the campus became the country. Those engaging in speech that ran afoul of the ruling class party line were treated as physical dangers to the homeland, demanding the full force of the public and private sectors to deter, punish, and subdue them. The author of these words is none other than my friend, Benjamin Weingarten. Ben is a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research, a fellow at the Claremont Institute, and senior contributor to The Federalist. He's the author of American Ingrate, Ilan Omar, and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Ben is the founder and CEO of Change Up Media LLC, a media consulting and production company, and he's a regular contributor to Newsweek. He's also a fellow warrior on the conservative side in the battle of ideas and our guest in the economic war room. Welcome, Benjamin. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate that kind introduction. Oh, Ben, we've been on a lot of calls together over the past few years, and I'm a big fan of your work. You cover a lot of the ground that we deeply care about, whether the war on free speech, the politicization of our government, ESG and woke investing, and of course, China. I especially read your January 3rd article in Newsweek and emailed you right away to get you here. The title, 2021, the year of the ruling class crackdown on dissent. I want to go through that with you. But at the same time that I saw your article, I also saw a new PragerU video that seems to set the stage. So let's play that, and then we'll talk about it. Here's the good news. The secret police are not coming with guns to take you away to a prison camp in a frozen wasteland for speaking out against the government. They did that in communist countries in the 20th century. It's not going to happen here in America or in Western Europe. Here's the bad news. The secret police aren't coming for you because they don't have to. There are ways to shut you up and keep you quiet that don't involve physical force. The powers that be, and that now includes major corporations, the educational establishment, the media, and the government, can just kick you off the internet, put you on a no-fly list, and bar you from using the banking system. We can describe scenario number one as hard totalitarianism and scenario number two as soft totalitarianism. There are big differences between them, but in the end, you arrive at the same place, submission and silence. 
To grasp the threat of totalitarianism, hard or soft, it's important to understand exactly what it means. According to the famous political scholar Hannah Arendt, a totalitarian society is one in which an ideology seeks to displace all prior traditions and institutions, with the goal of bringing all aspects of society under control of that ideology. The state literally defines and controls reality. Truth is whatever the rulers decide it is. These rulers might say something like, men can have babies, or skin color is more important than character, or the American Revolution was fought not for freedom, but to protect the colonists' slave interest, or those who resist a vaccine mandate are enemies of the people and insist that you not only believe it, but affirm it. If you don't, you might lose your job, your business, and your good name. That dystopian future, of course, is now. Ben, your Newsweek article proves that the dystopian future mentioned by PragerU was really the dominant story of last year. The ruling class really did crack down on dissent. Please unpack that for us. Yeah, we've been in the throes of what I would call an anti-cultural revolution for a couple of years now. It's really Maoist in its nature. And, and what's probably most disturbing about it, and it's reflected in that PragerU clip, is that it's both the public and private sector. In other words, we expect that governments will do all sorts of things to usurp power from us as individuals. But it's far more insidious and pernicious when private sector actors, so-called, of their own volition, go out and themselves do the bidding of the regime because they are, in fact, part of that regime. And so what I argue in this article is that, look, 2020 was the year of the lockdowns where our natural rights, our most basic fundamental rights, were usurped arbitrarily, capriciously, uh, unendingly, really. And of course, that's continued to an extent. But in 2021, those who dared dissent from the regime's orthodoxy face the full power, the full force of the private and public sectors in a, a crackdown on dissent of epic proportions and largely under the guise, of course, of purportedly national security and public health. And, and I lay out in this article that there were sort of three major buckets of areas where you could not dare dissent from the regime's official narrative, or you were cast as a danger to society and could potentially face even the counterterrorism powers of the federal government. And those were, of course, election integrity, because that gets to the very legitimacy of the ruling class's political power itself. Secondly, the draconian coronavirus policies and proclamations, of which, of course, the goalposts have shifted on virtually all of them. And we've seen they have virtually nothing to do with public health and most everything to do with political power, because that obviously gets at the power of the government over every aspect of our life and the sort of biomedical security state that has been imposed upon us. Uh, and then lastly, of course, critical race theory, what I would just define as racial Marxism in schools. If you dare to challenge that, well, first of all, who are parents to dissent when it comes to what their tax dollars are being used to teach their children about? But CRT, really part of wokeism, is the regime's ideology. And the regime cannot, cannot deal with any dissent from that ideology. You're absolutely right. We're going to need to take a break. When we come back, we'll break down some of those things. But those are the three buckets of things you can't say on television 
or in private, or with friends, or at school boards. You got it right. Let's take a break. When we left off, uh, Benjamin Weingarten was explaining the three buckets of things you can't say that oppose the government or oppose the ruling class. So, Ben, tell us, who are the ruling class? It's a great question, and, and I think you see the ruling class in who acted to crush dissent over the last year. So at the governmental level, we saw this crackdown on dissent codified in a few different ways, and this involves any number of agencies, the entire administrative state, really. Uh, it included, for example, the National Security Council and all the other organs that it implicated in a so-called national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which called for a whole of government and indeed whole of society effort to pursue people who dissented from the regime's narrative and to clamp down on so-called misinformation and disinformation, not like Russiagate or the nuking of the Hunter Biden story or a million other pieces of information or lab leak or other pieces of information that were not officially approved by the regime until some of them were, uh, but of course, dissent uh, from the regime's orthodoxy. You had, for example, uh, the National Security, the De Department of Homeland Security putting out these threat bulletins, talking about those potentially challenging, uh, questioning election integrity in 2020 and, and draconian COVID policies and beyond as being threats to the homeland. And then, of course, you had the FBI and the DOJ uh, and other authorities as well being threatened to be sicked on concerned parents across the country as well. So pretty much all of the federal authorities, and then of course the Biden administration itself, which advocated for private sector actors to get involved. And that includes big tech. I would say that includes woke capital, obviously our leading academic institutions, the, the medical establishment itself. Really, it's, it's a whole slew of the commanding heights of society, as well as our political class, who all share an agenda of usurping maximum power, claiming that they're the dissenters from their orthodoxy are the real threat to democracy when they themselves are not only anti-democratic, but acting in the very censorious and authoritarian fashion that they claim their political foes act in. Yeah, there's no question. When you have uh, Fauci lying to us, then he admits he lied to us, but then he declares he is the embodiment of science itself. And then, you know, what if, if we common folk were to say some of the things that, that they ultimately say, like he recently said, uh, yeah, well, a number of the people in the hospitals uh, really don't have, I mean, they have COVID, but that's not why they're in the hospital. I mean, if I said that uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, a month ago, uh, oh, ban him from YouTube, Twitter, and so forth, uh, they really are, and they're dispiriting us because when we see this disillusionment uh, from they can say it, but we can't say it. it. It really is harming patriotic Americans. And I think the same thing, and you made the point, is that when you let the writers get off, the BLM writers get off scot-free, but then you go after the grandma and grandpa who walked peacefully through the Capitol, that really does cause people to lose faith in their country and, and, and really demotivates us. Yeah, the, the two-tier justice system which means no justice system, is incredibly demoralizing. I think it's intended to demoralize. It's to, to show us that there is no equality under the law. In fact, of course, the equity agenda is all about ensuring unequality under the law and in private life as well. Uh, it's all about punishing, pounding us into submission, chilling, intimidating, coercing, and the like. But I think that also itself 
betrays a weakness. And one of the things I argue towards the end of this piece is that the reality is that the ruling class, its entire narrative essentially is that the other side is horrible, deplorable, and a threat to democracy, et cetera, because their agenda is failing and they cannot even dare broach that agenda. Rampant inflation, supply chain issues, spiraling violent crime, a whole host of calamities, obviously the backlash to the draconian coronavirus policies, even in blue states, and the same thing around indoctrinating kids in racial Marxism in schools. The entire agenda has crumbled. They cannot hide that agenda. So all they can do is try to target, smear, and intimidate their political foes and to try to make it so that you know, we're truly evil and deplorable, et cetera, when of course they're acting in the very way that they claim we are because they project, they always project. Uh, but I think it betrays fundamentally that this is the only card that they've got for 2022 because the American people can see with their own eyes the disaster of the ruling class's agenda and they don't want to submit to it any longer. Yeah, what concerns me is the statement, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. When they get to the point, it's either a weakness, which I hope it is, or they have so much power consolidated uh, that Lenin in Russia openly showed that he no longer cared about people. He openly killed people and so forth. So hopefully we're still on the decent side of this. When I see ESG being foisted on us by corporate America, um, it scares me, but it also opens, like you said, the uh, opportunity. ESG didn't work as well last year in the investment markets. It actually pro, you know, fossil fuels and energy actually did pretty well in the financial markets. And, and our, we're giving an alternative here, Economic War Room. We talk about LSV, liberty, security and values. And we talk about fighting all enemies, foreign and domestic. So I hope you're right. I hope that, uh, you know, this blatant show of obviousness by their side is weakness rather than strength. And America really is waking up. Yeah, and let me just say, I'm not making any predictions here because it's also worth noting that a wounded ruling class is a very dangerous ruling class. And they're already telegraphing the myriad ways under hysteria and under you know a perpetual rolling insurrection, which is the new narrative that our democracy is under threat. And the New York Times has an op-ed on January 1 of this year, every day is January 6th. They are trying to exploit fear monger, create that era, that kind of um, zeitgeist of hysteria and use that to usurp more and more power. But at the same time, they recognize that their policies have failed and they're paying a political price for it. So they're caught between that desire to usurp total power and keep pushing on the one hand, and on the other hand, the political imperative to survive. And I think they're really threatened on the political side right now, hence the hysteria. Yeah, and I love it. I'd love to see uh, Hillary Clinton challenging AOC, neither of which the American people want. They've made that clear. Uh, but but we're seeing that division. I think you make a great point. And I also love your point that a wounded ruling class is a dangerous ruling class. Uh, right now, we're seeing a wounded China in so many respects. They've been exposed in so many areas. And you've written extensively on the China threat, and you've studied it in great detail. So we're going to need to take a break. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about China and how they play into this ruling elite that we're seeing and what we as a people should be doing about that. Benjamin, last August, you wrote another great piece for Newsweek with the title, Woke Capital's Deathly China Addiction. Why do American companies continue to serve the Chinese Communist Party? 
It's really despicable and one of the more uh, dangerous entanglements that America has ever been engaged in in, in its history. Uh, woke capital broadly remains enthralled to communist China largely because of the purported promises of profits, access to a massive marketplace of you know, multiple billion people, 1.4 billion people. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, of course, has attempted to at least purportedly you know, cater to Western companies and the like, inviting in Western capital, expertise, technology, et cetera. And really, it's been one of the greatest ruses, one of the greatest influence operations ever played. Because unlike the Soviet Union, which was walled off from the West, China opened itself up to the West, and we opened ourselves up to Chinese influence. Consequently, we have underwritten the Chinese Communist Party's rise. We have armed it with technologies that pose an existential threat, ultimately, to this country. We have helped create our greatest adversary. And now our corporations, in many respects, find themselves in too deep. Their, their supply chains are deeply, deeply embedded in communist China. The, the Chinese government's policies, of course, uh, impact how American companies operate on the mainland and beyond, as we've seen in recent exposés, for example, about Apple and Amazon and others as well. And so consequently, we've given communist China a substantial amount of the power that ultimately imperils our survival as a free nation. And our ruling class, shamefully, I think, uh, not only remains in bed with communist China, in spite of the fact that it has not panned out really to the extent that it thought it would from the perspective of profits and rev growing revenues, et cetera, over the years, uh, but they increasingly seek to emulate it in terms of this drive for total power and use of technologies uh, against their political foes. So it has corrupted us, this relationship. It has empowered our worst adversary. And China has not become more like us as a consequence of engagement and integration. Our ruling class, sadly, has become more like the CCP. Yeah, there's no question. You had a, a, another article. It was uh, March of last year. Biden administration, China ties reveal a dis deeper disturbing truth. And this goes back to our first topic. We knew this, or we should have known this, with the revelation of the Hunter Biden laptop. But we couldn't talk about it because they cracked down on our even mentioning the reality that Hunter Biden has sold out our country uh, with his father. Yeah, and, and the real story of Hunter Biden, and I, I've argued this the whole time, and you can see this in the joint report that was put out, led by Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley in the Senate, which showed links, ties, coordination between Biden family members and, among others, very senior Chinese officials, those tied to the Chinese PLA, the military, uh, and beyond strategically significant industries, including energy. Uh, of course, the financial benefits that Hunter Biden was able to accrue as an investor, clearly by dint of his father's position at the time he was vice president. But it's not about Hunter Biden at the end of the day or any of other Biden's, President Biden's other relatives. It's about the appearance, if not in actuality, the conflict of interest and corruption and potential compromise of the U.S. president by dint of his family's dealings with the greatest foreign adversary 
we face. And that is the story that gets obscured and obfuscated when people focus on salacious and sensational headlines about Hunter Biden. Yes, all of that is incredibly disturbing, but what's even more disturbing is how much that imperils our national security given who Hunter Biden's father is. And it's never addressed, and it ought to be hammered home every time. Every single time President Trump did anything that touched even remotely close to Russia, it was, well, he's compromised by Russia, Russian agent, collusion, et cetera. How come every single China policy that, imp that Joe Biden touches or comes close to, the question isn't asked, how are your family's financial dealings with China impacting these policies? Not to mention the dealings, of course, of numerous senior administration officials, which I've chronicled in a series of pieces over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, and, and, and one of those um, things that they did early on was this private memo that exempted Chinese corporations listing in the United States from having to uh, abide by our accounting standards. Now, that's in, in process of being reversed. And, you know, obviously China can't raise money if they can't lie to us about the accounting. And when we demand that they give us truthful accounting, they just pull out. This, we have funded them to the tune of trillions of dollars of our capital funding their weapon system. And we've funded their slave labor initiatives with the Uyghurs. We've fun, funded their ability to monitor their people. We've funded their uh, human organ harvesting and all of those other threats. I think this is mass hypocrisy. Oh, absolutely, especially from woke capital, which talks about all of America's sins at home. And you're talking about the most evil, genocidal regime, largest one, certainly, on Earth. Uh, and they have underwritten it, aided, abetted, enabled it, as you noted, provided it with relevant technologies for its tyrannical and totalitarian state and beyond. It's a, it's a huge national security threat. Again, it didn't exist in the Cold War because we were not so inextricably intertwined with communist China. And if there's one thing we have to do as a country, it's decouple in every single strategically significant sector and beyond. The last thing you want to do is continue working with your adversary in engagement and integration when that is precisely what has built him up to the formidable adversary that the CCP now is. Yeah, and, and we have unfortunately underwritten what they're doing, uh, but that's at the Wall Street level. That's at the woke corporation level. The individual American has no desire whatsoever. Uh, there are three things you can do with your money. You can spend it, you can give it, and you can invest it. And uh, in Luke 16, 11, Jesus taught, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, if you're not faithful with your money, nobody's ever going to trust you with true riches. And true riches, you know, are, are things like liberty. Uh, those are true riches. Uh, so what we've got to do, and what we do here in the economic war, and we'll ask for your help with this, is we help wake people up regarding their spending. It should not go to China. Their investing should not go to ESG and woke. And their giving should reflect their values. And unfortunately, it's not reflecting their values anymore. So we're promoting a Made in the USA. We're promoting LSV investing. And as for giving, I want to bring this up. You're with London Center for Policy Research as a senior fellow and Claremont Institute as a fellow. Those are two incredible organizations that are donor supported. Can you tell us a little about them? Yeah, each in their own way are devoted to defending American values, principles, our history, our culture, our national interest, uh, contrary to to woke capital and, and far too many of our politicians and administrative state officials. And the London Center is more focused on the national security and foreign policy side. Claremont is more focused uh, on ensuring that a truly American regime exists in this country, not the kind of ruling class tyranny that we face today. So each of them in their own silos 
are focused on defending the national interest of this country, uh, its history, its people. Uh, and I think they both do yeoman's work in both those regards. Well, I agree. Thank you, Benjamin. We really appreciate you joining us in the economic war room. Uh, we need to tell you, you need to weaponize your money as a viewer. You're spending, you're giving, and you're investing. All of these links to where Benjamin's working and everything else will be in our economic battle plan. And you get a free copy at economicwarroom.com. Beyond that, if you have a financial advisor, send them to economicwarroom.com forward slash advisor. Nominate them, and we'll train them on how to weaponize your money to defend our nation. And if your financial advisor is not interested in doing that, uh, bottom line, you probably need a new financial advisor. Believe me, there are plenty of people who want to help you help save America. Uh, that's why we've put the battle plan together. Economic battle plan is found at economicwarroom.com. You can sign up and download it free. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.